What I would like to uh, talk about this evening is dimensions of desire. 2,600 years ago, Siddhartha, as a young man, sat underneath the Bodhi tree and embarked upon what he later came to call a noble search or a noble quest. Personally, I think it's always so very important to remember the very human face and the very humanity of Siddhartha, the future Buddha, and not to be too lost in ideals or romantic images. The search that Siddhartha undertook was, of course, not a search that was unique to him. Instead, when we cast our eyes across different times and cultures, we see so many countless women and men, young and old, embarking on such a similar search. In all cultures, all traditions, in cloisters, on mountainsides, in the midst of families and communities, the search or the quest to understand what it means to live an authentic life, guided by an inner authority and wisdom, embodied in dignity and compassion and intentionality. I mean, right now, as we sit here, we can be quite sure that there are so many sitting in Burmese jungles, in Thai monasteries, in Himalayan caves, you know what, doing exactly what we're doing right now. Learning what it means to be still, learning what it means to listen inwardly, learning what it means both to understand and to embody this natural authority Lal Dead, she was a young Indian, 14th century woman. She once wrote, she said, To learn the scriptures is easy, to live them hard. The search for the real is no simple matter. Deep in my looking, the last words vanished, joyous and silent, the waking that met me there is. The Buddha's search, I think like all noble searches, began with insight. He saw, just as we see in his own experience, that ultimate security and peace and freedom was simply not going to be found in a world of conditions. And that aversion and resistance was not a life of dignity and not a life of freedom. Prior to his own awakening, the Buddha described his mind as being filled with disquiet, as being unreliable, where simply too many things in his mind and in the world were acting as a gatekeeper of his happiness. And he saw for himself how often he just felt swept along in his life on waves of habit and impulse and reactivity. He also saw for himself that as long as he lived locked in a belief of insufficiency and craving and a sense of lack, inner lack, he was also going to be equally locked into a life of agitation where there was a diminished sense of possibility and undignified life. And these were the insights that brought Siddhartha to the Bodhi tree. And I think there are many of the same insights that bring us to a cushion and to a retreat. Now, when the Buddha described this path as being a noble search or a noble quest, he described it as the seeking for the unborn, the supreme security, the freedom from bondage, the search for the freedom from struggle and sorrow, 
for a sublime peace. Now, I suspect when we hear the word noble, or better in a verb form, ennobling, we might struggle a bit to apply that word to our own experience here or what we're doing here when we sit around, you know, in our pajamas and sweatpants looking forward to lunch or, you know, lost in fantasy or just doing our best to find a breath or two. It may not feel all that noble. Or the word noble may just sound a little bit too dramatic or overstated. Yet, by all accounts, Siddhartha did not sit under the Bodhi tree, thinking only sublime thoughts, graced with boundless love and kindness. No, by all accounts, Siddhartha sat under the Bodhi tree, with fantasy, with aversion, with dullness, with doubt, with uncertainty. But he sat with them. And he was able to look them in the eye. And he came to know they were not his true home. And he refused simply to participate in their dance. Now this word noble, or better, the word ennobling, the verb ennobling, is actually a much used word in this teaching and this path. And I think rather than just sort of immediately dismissing it or feeling unworthy of it, perhaps this word ennobling can help us in some real ways to reframe our own path and practice. We may look at what brings us here beneath, underneath all the stories and the chatter and the commentaries and, you know, all the various twinges of resistance and whatever arises. When we look at what actually brings us here and what we are doing here, do we not also long, long to know what it means to live a life where there is a sense of natural dignity and poise? Do we not long to find a way of living where our words and our acts spring from love and spring from compassion, to be free of fear? Do we not long to find in ourselves the roots and the source of an unshakable happiness and freedom and to be the gatekeeper of our own hearts? to be the gatekeeper of our own happiness, to know how to live in harmony with others and to find in ourselves the courage and the fearlessness that would really allow us to meet the ocean of sorrow and pain and suffering in our world without being overwhelmed, but with, but with grace and with wise action. Awakening, as the Buddha so succinctly described it, was not some mystical entry into some transcendent domain limited to only an elite few. But sometimes, as it said in this teaching, as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. The Buddha, as he described this, his awakening, he said he simply saw things the way they are, born of conditions, changing, and empty of self. And in that, he came to know the end of struggle and anguish. In that awakening, came to know an inner sense of freedom and sufficiency, and saw the end of lack the end of all beliefs in insufficiency. And certainly the Buddha described this as a very radical change of heart. And he described it really in the framework of the four noble or the four ennobling truths. The simple awareness, the clear awareness that there is struggle, there is disquiet, there is sorrow, there is unsatisfactoriness in this life. There is an origin to struggle, an origin to suffering. 
There is an end of struggle and suffering. And there is a path to that end. And as the Buddha described this, to live in the light of that understanding and the light of that reality was really to discover an inner nobility and to live a noble life. And this was really, this is really the invitation of the whole of this path and this teaching to us all to understand those same truths. But it is an understanding that can quite radically change the nature of our minds and quite radically change the nature of our hearts and indeed our life. Now these four ennobling truths, as the Buddha described them, they were not statements of ideology, they were not beliefs to be blindly accepted or adopted or subscribed to. They were invitations and they were really calls to response. As he said, suffering is to be understood. Its causes are to be investigated and to let go of. The end of suffering is something for us to realize. And the path is something for us to cultivate and to embody. And as the Buddha put it, to answer that invitation, to answer that call, will bring, as the Buddha discovered for himself, a natural authenticity and authority, and the life of unhesitating compassion. These ennobling truths, I think, you know, they were not something meant to console us in some ways, but in many, in a very real way, I think, to challenge us, to change the shape of our mind and heart. So this evening, I really want to most focus upon this second noble truth, the causes of suffering and struggle. And I also want to look at the paradox of desire, the way that craving, for example, is very much a servant of the belief in insufficiency And the ways that craving, rather than calming or easing that sense of insufficiency, instead only strengthens it. Now, sometimes I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding in this teaching that sometimes when we hear the word desire used, or we we almost mishear a kind of blanket condemnation of all forms of longing or all forms of desire. And it's a misunderstanding that I'd like to just try to unpack just a little bit and to look at some of the different dimensions, the threads of desire that run through our lives. First of all, there are the desires that can be answered. These are the simple desires often that just help us to navigate our way through life. It's raining. I have the desire to put up my umbrella. You know, it's that simple. You know, I see a hole in the road. I'd rather not fall in. I see a car coming down the lane. I think I'd like to get out of the way. You know, these are the kind of very simple desires that run through all of our days. You know, I'd like a shower, I'd like, I'd rather be uh, fed than starving, you know, I'd rather have clothes than not. Um, You know, the simple desires that navigate our way through our day and through our lives. Our body sends us messages of hunger and thirst to not be hurt. They are desires that protect the well-being of our bodies and others. We might see a child about to fall off a cliff. I'd really want them not to. I really, even really want them not to. But what we see with these kind of navigation desires is that they arise and they pass and they leave no residues in the mind. That's the big one. They leave no residues in the mind. 
after I've put my umbrella up in the midst of the rainstorm, I do not beat myself up for the next three hours about why did I put my umbrella up. Maybe if I was really a good yogi, I wouldn't put my umbrella up and I'd just tough it out, you know. And, I mean, I, they leave no residues in the mind. They're just done. Huh? There's a certain completeness. They can be answered. There's another realm of desire, which in Pali, it, it, it comes in the word chanda, but it's more kusala or wholesome longings. These are the longings also that can be translated into action. They are also the longings that have an answer. There are longings that bring us here, aren't there? You know, without desire, we wouldn't arrive here. Without some of those kusala, those wholesome longings, we would not come back sitting after sitting and walking after walking. Somehow there's a kind of quieter inner voice that keeps us returning, keeps us showing up. The longing to know a greater kindness, a greater spaciousness, a greater compassion. The longing to be free from pain. The longing for connectedness. Now these longings, these kind of noble or kusala longings, they're not only part of our personal journey, our personal quest. On a much wider level, they have been part of every great social and cultural and spiritual revolution that has ever happened. They have much to do with ending apartheid, slavery, child abuse, our capacity to be here as we are here now has been the fruition of generations of practitioners who have gone before us, who have made this possible. These are longings to be honored, to be respected, and even to given voice to, because these are the longings that actually do ennoble our lives and ennoble our hearts in a way These longings are what gives a sense of shape and direction to our path. And we all know, and the reason I say I think it's very important for them to be respected, articulated and honored, because I think all of us know in our life how easily those very wholesome, those very kusala desires, longings, can simply be drowned out to our daily preoccupations and busyness that create a kind of amnesia, a kind of forgetfulness about what we're doing, about what kind of path we're on, about what we're most deeply dedicated to. In many ways, these wholesome longings, I think, they are what takes us out of the palace of the familiar, the illusion, the habit, And they are the longings that help us to stop and to question, I think, moment to moment in our lives. What is it that we are dedicated to? What do we most deeply value? I think without these longings clear clear in our heart and then translated into intention and embodied, it is so easy for us just like Siddhartha recognized in himself, to become lost in forgetfulness and to be swept along day to day in the tide of doing and hoping and obsessing and arranging our world just as much as we can to protect ourselves from what we dislike or what we fear or what we're anxious about, to be simply lost in habit. Until sometimes, every now and then, Something comes along that reminds us, clearly reminds us, that the only certainty we have in this life is that we will die. And I think these longings remind us to value the manner of our living above all else. Our longings, our wholesome, these these kusala desires are here to remind us of what is possible. In a way, this is actually the promise of this teaching. 
that the seeds of great compassion, the seeds of great wakefulness, lie within each of our hearts. And they are seeds that ask for our cultivation, ask us to attend to them. That profound freedom and dignity and poise, the possibility of poise, lives within each of our hearts. But of course, these longings, these kusalat desires, do need to be translated into something much more substantial than just hopes or wishful thinking. They need to be translated into the path of our life that ennobles our hearts. Now there is something important about these kusala desires, that they are the desires that lead to the end of desire. They are the desires that lead to the end of desire, the desires that can be answered. In the Dhammapada, there's a wonderful, wonderful few lines that say, all that we are now is a result of all that we were. And that all that we will be tomorrow, or even in the next moment, will be the result of all that we are now. I find that those particular lines of teaching the Dhammapada so poignant and in a way so profound that all that we are now in this moment is a result of all that we were and all that we will be tomorrow or even the next moment will be the result of all that we are now. Because what this is really pointing to, I think, is a sense of urgency but I think it's also pointing to the, the reality that every single moment in our life is a potential turning point. A potential turning point holds the potential to come out of the realm of habit and impulse and fear and insufficiency into another way of being. It's almost like every moment in, a friend of mine calls it that every moment of mindfulness is a moment of psychological and emotional opportunity or possibility. Because this teaching is really one that invites us to look where we are making our home in the moment. Do we make our home in busyness or in calm? Are we making our home in anxiety or in simplicity and confidence, in aversion or in kindness? What it's really pointed to is that the end of the path, the end of suffering, does not lie in some impossible, unattainable breakthrough moment, but there is something much more immediate that the Buddha was speaking about in this about in this teaching about bringing about the end of struggle and suffering. Reminding ourselves again and again to liberate the moment. I mean, I, I must say, after so many years, actually decades of teaching, I continually, I'm, I'm continually awed and touched and startled by the amount of change and transformation that people can go through in the very short space of time of a retreat. How there can be this quite often quite profound movement and shift from contractedness to spaciousness, from agitation to ease, to confusion to understanding and to clarity. It's not as if the answers to every single life dilemma is going to be found in the space of a few days. It's not as if we've solved every issue in our life or difficulty. But our hearts can be changed profoundly. And I feel that what is so significant and so important to acknowledge that those shifts that can happen in just a few days in a retreat, they are actually not geographical. They're not somehow in the walls of this place. They're actually born of our own intentions to, be, to listen inwardly, to be present, 
to be awake and to begin to explore for ourselves what it means to liberate the moment from suffering. Through understanding, through kindness, through compassion, reminds us to take care of the quality of our heart in every moment. It's a wonderful small piece of a poem by Naomi Wolf, Naomi Shihab Nye, which I love. She says, when someone invites you to a party, remember what parties are like before answering. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. We might say, then decide what to do with your attention. Think of how many parties you've been invited to today. You know, there might have been the fantasy party, you know, the obsession party, the planning party, you know, the memory party, the judgment party. Not all parties are great. You know, think of how many parties you've been invited to today and how many times you might have been able to remember, ah, Just take care of the quality of my heart in this moment. Maybe, maybe I don't need to always go to the party. Maybe I can walk around like a leaf knowing I could tumble any second and then make wise choices what to do with my time. There's another dimension of desire which is often referred to as a kind of spiritual urgency. Spiritual urgency. Now again, this is not a realm of desire which is entirely unfamiliar to us. Sometimes spiritual urgency is defined only as the kind of, you know, profoundly committed, undistracted, unhesitating desire for awakening, which is certainly part of some vague spiritual urgency. But I think it's also much bigger than that. I'm sure we have all experienced those moments that touch us so deeply when we might somehow catch sight, even in the media, of a child dying needlessly of hunger or or disease or someone suffering so deeply. And there are moments, actually, we really see. We really see. And in that scene, our hearts are disturbed. They tremble. Closer to home, we may have seen a person we love, or ourselves actually, become gravely ill. And unhesitatingly at the forefront of our mind, there comes compassion, the wish to reach out, to help, to heal, to be wholeheartedly present. Our worlds will certainly crumble at different times in our lives through illness, through loss, through breakdowns of trust. And we know those are not the moments we get lost in fantasy or planning. We know those moments when we really see and are really touched just how important it is to find the inner courage to be upright to find refuge, to find and have that urgency to be awake arises. It's not about haste. It's not about intensity. It's knowing this is really what is needed. It's about sincerity and compassion because we know how easy it is to be forgetful and to think that tomorrow is bound to be a better day to be awake. We know how easy it is to have that thought, that tomorrow's bound to be a better day, to be present, to be kind. The Buddha put it of his own search, his own path, sitting under the Bodhi tree. He resolved to sit even if his, until his blood ran cold, if that was what was required for him to be awake. But some vega, the spiritual urgency is also a desire that can be quenched. It can be answered. We can open. We can serve. We can discover compassion and embody it. We can discover a mind which is truly an ally and a friend on this path.
Now for the bad news. I want to look at the realm, the realm of desire that has no end and that has no answer. The word in Pali is tanha, often described as an unquenchable thirst. An unquenchable thirst that rather than ending suffering just brings yet more. Tanha, craving, is the desire that is a servant of the belief in insufficiency and digs the pit of that belief in insufficiency a little bit deeper, actually, each time it is pursued. These, this is the realm of desire we are asked to really question, to examine, if we want to be free from suffering and struggle. Because this is the realm of desire, tanha, that actually binds us to struggle and to suffering. There's a wonderful poem by Rumi. He says, Who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in myself. I should be suspicious of what I want. And if we truly want to bring about the end of suffering, not just emotional and psychological suffering in our own lives, but indeed contribute to the end of the suffering in our world, craving is something that so deeply needs to be understood and released. And truly it is a radical invitation to change the shape of our hearts and minds and at times to change the shape of our lives Bringing about the end of tanha craving is an invitation to freedom. It's an invitation to understanding what sufficiency and dignity really are. I think part of that understanding or that journey of understanding craving is first the the willingness to honestly know and to actually feel what the landscape of craving is and how much it can permeate our lives. And actually to feel, to actually have a felt sense of the agitation and the painfulness of craving. To actually have a felt sense for ourselves that every moment of engaging in tanha is a moment of abandoning our own heart's capacity for freedom. I think it is so important to have that felt sense because without that felt sense, this is just a theory, you know. But to have that felt sense, I think perhaps we find the willingness to step out, not only of tanha, craving, but to step out of a world of discontent and sorrow. It's a very closed feedback loop that happens in craving, when we believe in or feel inwardly a sense of lack or sense of insufficiency in the moment or in ourselves, what do we do with that? Well, we start to search the world, things, people, experiences that we feel might answer that sense of lack. And it's not that we're always unsuccessful. We have moments of success where we feel a sense of relief, but they're only momentary. They end, and once more we find that awareness of a a kind of growing, disquiet sense of ease, a hunger, a hunger. And once more we go in search of a way to answer that hunger. It's kind of a more policy. It's a kind of more policy. In America, they have this dessert, uh, some of you might come across it, where they, they put sort of uh, chocolate in between two crackers and cover them in tin foil and bake them, and they're called s'mores. And the reason why they're called s'mores is because you always want more. So it's always more. <laughs> but it's kind of, it sort of describes the Tanha policy. It's a policy of more. More sense impressions, 
more sights, more food, more excitement. And every time we're in that pursuit, what happens? The sense of lack, of not enough inwardly, gets reinforced. So we want to just look at some of the dimensions of tanha, some of the dimensions of craving that really keep us agitated. The craving for sensual pleasure. More pleasant sights, sounds, taste, touch, through the eyes, through the ears, through the body, through the mind. We become hungry in that craving. I think even the sense of I, of self, is a kind of appetite, looking for more. Prowling the world like I'm looking, like seeing a mirage in a desert, believing, and this is part of this belief, believing that we can only be happy in the midst of pleasant experience. That we can only be happy in the midst of, un, of pleasant experience. And that the source of joy lies elsewhere outside ourselves. In that belief in insufficiency, We tie our happiness and our unhappiness, our success as a person or our failure as a person, to what we manage to get in terms of the pleasant and what we manage to get rid of in terms of the unpleasant. What did the Buddha discover and what countless practitioners through time have discovered is that when we can find the willingness to step out of the fires of craving and discontent, to be still, to begin to still and calm our minds and bodies, to begin to cultivate an inner collectedness, we do discover in our own hearts an inwardly generated joy and happiness, serenity greater than any happiness that is ever born of craving. then we really see and taste that freedom of heart and mind that is not tied to getting and not tied to getting rid of. There is so much in the world that is delightful, so much in the world that is simply pleasant, so much in the world that is lovely. But what we are really discovering in this practice and cultivating in this practice is our capacity to be delighted. Because without that capacity to be delighted, we could stand in the midst of a waterfall of pleasant sights, sounds, and sensations and remain untouched. We are just cultivating our capacity to appreciate, to be delighted, to have our hearts be gladdened and actually content in the midst of all things. Content in the midst of all things, not bound by conditions. The second form of tanha, the second form of this craving, is the craving to become. I think this is a very weighty craving. It's a big one in our society. You know, we start to ask two-year-olds, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up, you know? They hardly even learn to breathe yet. You know, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, this pressure to be someone, you know, this pressure to exhibit having, being able to exhibit having become someone worthy of admiration, worthy of applause, worthy of love, worthy of appreciation, this ongoing pressure to become. Sometimes in our culture it's called self-improvement. Now, this craving to become is not the same as the wholesome and skillful longings to cultivate and realize respect, integrity, creativity, to embody what we most deeply value. The craving to become lovable, acceptable, worthy rests actually upon the belief that we are not, that we are actually not enough. Not good enough, not worthy enough, not lovable enough. And so we pursue that craving to become is pursued sometimes through pursuing identity, sometimes through pursuing certain states, through pursuing certain experiences that tell us we are worthy. 
this it is an ongoing abandonment of the acceptance and the compassion and the sufficiency of our own hearts. Believing in insufficiency, praise and blame become incredibly important in our lives. We might find ourselves seeking and hoarding moments of praise. You know, we might have you ever found yourself rehearsing for an interview group? Nobody wants to report, you know, that, oh, you know, I'm such a failure. We all like to be able to report something that's going to generate a little bit of sort of acceptability here. But in our lives, we can just pursue praise, praise molding ourselves to the expectations of others, seeking approval, seeking affirmation. It's a toxic craving, this craving to become. And it really, you know, we would really ask, does this ennoble our lives and our hearts, or does this craving to become, in every single moment of its pursuit, actually diminish that sense of dignity and sufficiency? And I think what we, we do also see that if we hoard praise, guess what else we hoard? Criticism, blame, judgment, the perception, rejections by others perceived as being the ultimate truth of our unworthiness or insufficiency. I can actually think of hardly any other impulse in the craving to become that can be so detrimental to people's freedom because it really makes us at the mercy of the need for approval. It makes us seek perfection. It's to live in fear of failure and rejection. And we certainly need to be sensitive, I think, to this form of craving in our practice as we learn to listen inwardly. Because we start to be increasingly, I think, sensitive to the voice of the inner critic and the inner judge, because it, that does not arise without this form of craving to become or to not, or to not become, which I would get into. This sort of voice of the inner critic, the voice of the inner judge, rests upon this belief system that gets then manifested, I need to be a certain kind of person. We learn to become sensitive to those inner voices. Sometimes we don't have to become too sensitive because the voices are so loud. And, but we begin to question them. Are these voices actually telling us something truthful about ourselves or are these voices actually telling the story of the craving to become and self-abandonment? Are these voices actually not just telling ourselves the endless story of insufficiency? If we follow in the footsteps of that craving, there is an inevitability about a sense of failure and disappointment in ourselves that will come. What we do in the practice is become sensitive to question actually this whole story of insufficiency, which is really the story of me. And to really begin to see that I don't tell the story of insufficiency or lack, but rather that the story, the thoughts, keep telling me about who I am or believe myself to be. How the story is moment to moment building the story of, of me. Now, in the practice, I think we begin to discover that the story of I actually arises with the story of discontent and the story of insufficiency. In learning to make our home in stillness, in, in quietude, in the awareness of our heart, I think what happens is that we start to have a more uh, sense of more disbelief in the story. It's a more disbelief. It's what allows it to arise, but also to pass and to be known as a story. 
Well, we think, I think we start to see this package that comes, the, these threads in this cloth where selfing and craving and clinging and agitation are all threads in the same cloth. And if we begin to unravel any one of those threads, we unravel the whole of the cloth. We unravel the whole of the story. Our creativity and authenticity and inner authority, the qualities that ennoble our lives and our hearts, they're not born of craving. And they're not born of a perfect self. They're not gained. They're not attained. Rather, these qualities that ennoble our lives are in a very real way actually rediscovered. When we find what it means that to, to step into the coolness out of the out of the agitation, the belief in insufficiency. Now, the craving for becoming is really twinned. It's really married to the craving for non-existence, the craving for non-becoming. Again, it is a dimension of craving that robs nobility and freedom from our lives. Now, how do we see this craving for non-existence? So many different levels. In many ways, we see it in aversion. You know, we want something to go away. You know, the little flickers of resistance, of pushing away, that our attempts to divorce ourselves from what is. Sometimes we see this this craving for non-existence in it's really a manifestation of a fear of discomfort, a fear of being annihilated, a fear of being overwhelmed by the difficult and the unpleasant. What does that fear do? It leads us to protect, to defend, to become agitated, to become judgment, judgmental, intolerant. On a deeper level, this craving for non-existence is a desire to disappear, to annihilate ourselves, to annihilate ourselves as we see ourselves to be. We don't want to be the kind of person who has a certain kind of experience. We don't want to be the kind of person who has the experience of fear, anxiety, or or unworthiness, or inadequacy. We want that person to disappear. How do we do that? There's different ways we can do that. Sometimes we do it by conforming to what we believe is expected of us. Sometimes we pursue that desire to disappear by trying to be invisible in our lives, by trying to be good. At times we just seek numbness. To not feel, to not experience. Sometimes we feel this desire for non-becoming, the craving for non-becoming, in much more agitated ways, in avoidance, suppression, rage, and blame. We will all meet those moments in our practice. We will all meet these dimensions of craving in our practice because we meet them in our lives and our hearts. What do we do with them? We don't push them away. We don't add judgment to judgment. We don't add blame to blame. We actually learn to be upright in our own being in the midst of those moments, to nurture our heart's capacity for acceptance, for kindness, for compassion, to seek the end of suffering moment to moment. We learn to cultivate, to really cultivate the courage to face the winds of the difficult, to dive inwardly and to really embrace, to find the poise to embrace all things equally. Some of you might know this poem by by Mary Oliver. She says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Wherever, whoever you are, No matter how lonely, 
The world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. If we understand the causes of suffering, release our hearts from the grip of craving, we will come to know the end of suffering. When the Buddha described the landscape of liberation, it is, he described it as a complete freedom from the compulsions of craving, and he called this freedom the taste of the Dharma, the taste of the Dharma that ennobles our life. And in this practice, we're really encouraged to know for ourselves that taste of the Dharma, that taste of freedom, It's not about rejecting or judging, craving. This is another form of craving. But it's almost to begin to follow the winds of craving as they move through our day, to know their nature, to know their source, their arising and passing, to know their outcome. And perhaps to alert ourselves inwardly to all those moments of hunger and compulsion and rejection and aversion, to know they are almost like reflexes of the belief in insufficiency and lack, and to be still in the waves. It's not even that we let go of craving, but rather that craving, tanha, really lets go of itself when we do not follow its call. And every moment this happens, we taste something else. I think we taste the freedom of being ungoverned. We taste the freedom of an inner authority and authenticity of dignity. It's almost like the little cravings and the big cravings, the little and the driving compulsions, the little and the great aversions. It's almost like they're the arms and legs of one body. It's the body of lack, the body of the belief in insufficiency. It's also, I think, that the small and the great moments of calm, of stillness, the small and the great moments of uprightness and spaciousness, of kindness and compassion, these two are all the arms and legs of one body, the body of sufficiency. It is a body, I think, of inner freedom that truly does ennoble our lives and our hearts. We're just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.